you don't have a Bible or you don't have a worship program, just raise your hand. One of our hosts will provide one for you. But the book of 1 Samuel is found on page 211. 211. And as you're wondering, so as we start this new series in 1 Samuel, it's called No Other King. And we're going through this to be reminded that God is really the one in charge. God is the, the, the true king. And ultimately, all of our confidence, all of our, uh, our hope is found in him in him alone. And as we think about leaders, as we, and in this series we'll see themes of leadership, we'll see themes of faithfulness, we'll see themes of rebellion that come out in this, but in all these things we'll see the sovereignty of God. We'll see his true leadership on display. Well, let me ask from an earthly sense, have you ever wondered what a leaderless society would look like? Like a true leaderless society with no one in charge. Imagine for a second that, that there was no authority. Uh, even, or ask a group of students, students, what would it look like if your school had no teachers or administrators in it? Now you might think, that sounds like a blast. <laughs> or we in society might think, oh, it would be wonderful to have no leaders, to have no one telling me what to do. Well, that all sounds great until you've been wronged. Until someone needs to bring justice to a difficult situation. Until, until like, you know, chaos is ensuing and so someone needs to bring order. We love the idea of, of a leaderless society where we can just kind of do anything we want until we have to make difficult decisions for everyone. See, we may not always like or agree with the leaders who are over us. We should always be respectful we should always be kind and considerate even when we disagree, but we may not always like them, but the answer to lousy authority is not no authority. It's good authority. See, a leaderless society leads to chaos. And in the history of Israel, there was a time when no one was in charge. And this did not lead to the nation's success, but its ruin. See, God throughout history had always worked through particular individuals to lead his people. Think Moses coming out of Egypt. As the, in the Exodus, they're led out of Egypt by Moses and he gives them the law. He establishes them as a nation. Moses is the leader. Moses was imperfect, but he still led the people. The next leader after Moses was Joshua. Joshua, through his leadership, the Israelites conquered the promised land, the, pro the land that God had, had given to them, and they, they conquered that area, and Joshua was the, the leader. Well, then after Joshua, the people rebelled, but God still raised up judges to lead the people. One author says that these judges were essentially saviors or deliverers of the people. But as we read the book of Judges, we get exhausted quite quickly between good judge, bad judge, good judge, bad judge. And we're all left longing for the righteous judge, a good one. At the end of Judges, in chapter 21, verse 25, we read one of the most devastating statements in Scripture. The writer writes, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, that's not a statement of freedom. That's a statement of chaos. A leaderless society does not work. 
And that statement, again, leaves us longing at the end of that book where we get good judge, bad judge, good judge, bad judge. At the end to say there's no king. Everyone does what's right, right in their own eyes. We're left longing for the righteous king. In our English Bibles, then we turn to the book of Luke, or the book of Ruth. And in Ruth is essentially a, an excursus, a story about a time in the judges. In, the part in, uh, in our women's Bible study, you guys will be learning part of the theme in Ruth is to see God's provision or protection to raise up an eventual king. As we see the, the ancestry of King David that's indicated in the book of Ruth. But, but in Jewish tradition, they would have gone straight from the book of Judges to the book of Samuel. Now we have first and second Samuel that actually represents two different scrolls. So you would have had, again, a big portion of text on one scroll, that scroll, 1 Samuel. Big portion of text on another scroll, that's 2 Samuel. So really it's the book of Samuel, but in 1 Samuel we see God going straight from the judges immediately to the book of Samuel. And Samuel represents this transition of God's leadership in his people from the judges to a king, to a monarchy. The main characters of Samuel include several significant people in the Old Testament. Samuel is essentially the last judge of Israel. Saul then is the first king. And then we see later David as God's true anointed. And while these three figures are extremely significant, they're important, we'll notice that God is the main character. See, in this series through 1 Samuel, no other king will be reminded of good examples and bad examples, faithfulness and rebellion. We'll see examples to follow and examples to not. But the main idea still in all of those things is that God is the one who is in control. See, our main idea today and a decent summary for the whole book of 1 Samuel is this. God provides his leader in his time and in his way. God provides his leader and his time and in his way. See, like the people of Israel, we need leadership. We, we need to be led. We need to be governed. We need justice to reign in our society. And yet we find all of our earthly attempts fall short. Even the best of earthly rulers don't rule perfectly. And like Israel, when no king rules perfectly, it can seem that everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And this can lead us to frustration, to despair. It can lead us to doubt and it can lead us to doubt God. See, when we can't see God and we say, and we say to ourselves all the time that he's really in control. And yet around the world, it seems as if things are going haywire, things are chaotic, then it can lead us to doubt. And when we doubt God's sovereignty, it leads us to put our ultimate trust and allegiance into an earthly leader who promises hope, who promises renewal, who promises greatness, who promises justice and all the earthly senses of it. And yet that leader will lead us to be frustrated. Because no earthly ruler, no earthly king can take the place of God. And part of the reason we need the book of 1 Samuel is because as God's people, not just from 3,000 years ago, God's people 3,000 years ago needed to know that God is the one who's sovereign. But now we today as God's people in the 21st century, we also too need to know that God is the one who is sovereign and he will provide his leader in his time and in his way. My hope from this 
series is that we become a more confident people in the sovereignty of God and his leadership and his governance over us and that that would lead us to trust him. There really is no other king but the Lord. So as we begin in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we see this story of a young woman named Hannah who desired a child. Now, you might be familiar with this story in the past, and you might understand some of the themes there. And the story of Hannah is really a microcosm of the story of Israel. See, it's about Hannah. She's part of the story. She's one of the main characters. But really, we should also see Hannah's longing for a child is like Israel's longing for a king. So this story that we see here, we're kind of zooming in on a sense where the people of Israel would have been able to identify with Hannah's longing too. Because Hannah's longing was their longing. But through this interaction in particular with Hannah, we see that we learn a lot about God, we learn a lot about people, and we see that God is raising up his leader in his time and in his way. So we'll see about the plight of God's people, the prayers of God's people, his plea, their pleas, and ultimately the praise of God as well. So let's pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll see the main idea here, point 1, is that God knows the plight of his people. I'll be reading the text as we go through the four main points of the sermon. But God knows the plight of his people. Look at verse 1. There was a certain man of Rothatham Zophim, of the hill country Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrodite. Best of luck, y'all. Just do it as best you can. <laughs> he had two wives, Elkanah. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, before we move on too quickly, we need to identify the main characters that we see so far in the story. We've seen this man named Elkanah and his two wives, Penina and Hannah. Now, just very quickly, I want to make clear that the Bible never endorses polygamy, even if we see it described in the Bible. Sometimes descriptions of events or people or relationships in the Bible are mere descriptions. They're not statements of endorsement. Now, you might remember when our global worker, Greg Burgess, was with us, and he's talking about resourcing African pastors to deal with African issues. And polygamy remains actually a, a big pastoral issue going on in the country of Africa. This is not just, or the continent of Africa, this is not just a, an outdated um, challenge that's going on. So biblically speaking, we need to be clear that the Bible's design for marriage is always one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant. And as we'll see today, and as we see exemplified in other parts of Scripture, multiple wives never works out well. So for more on this, that's all I'm going to say on this topic. But for more, yeah, you might want more there, but best of luck. If you want more, simply Google uh, Sam Amadi, Sam Amadi at Desiring God, who has a really helpful article on the issue of polygamy in the Bible. But in any case, the text clarifies really important relationships here. First, Penina had children and Hannah had no children. And this is an essential detail because where, with Hannah being childless, this would have meant great shame in that culture. In fact, Hannah was likely Elkanah's first wife. But when she could not bear children, he took a second wife. And as we'll see, this leads to chaos in the family. So look at verse 3. Now, this man used to go up year by year from 
his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. There are where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as they went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now let's notice a handful of things here going on in the text. First, we see that they're worshiping year after year. The tabernacle at this time is located in Shiloh. And when the worshipers would come, they would make their sacrifices. And after those sacrifices, they would enjoy a pretty lavish, full meal. And during this meal, Elkanah would give some portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to her children. But still to Hannah, he gave a double portion, a better portion of the meat. Notice, because he loved her. Elkanah loved his wife. They shared a rich relationship. And notice that it says he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. See, in that culture, it would have been easy to see Hannah and said, the Lord is displeased with you. The Lord is not happy with you. The Lord is judging you because you have no children. That was full of shame in that culture to be childless. But for Elkanah, I think his, his love for his wife is admirable. He says, it says he gave her a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. He did not see the relationship with his wife as something like, I'll only give as long as you're giving to me. He, he did not say, I'll only honor you so long as you honor me. He, it, he loved her. So he gave her a double portion. I love to drill. Therefore, my kids love to eat. And they have no idea how spoiled their palate is. But a secret they're finding out today is that sometimes mom and dad get a better portion of meat than what they do. Mom can get the prime steak, and they can get the choice. Mom can get the filet with bacon wrapped around it, and they can get a sirloin. Why? Because mom's number one. I love mom. So they get the, double, the, the, the other portions. Sorry, bro, you'll get over it. Elkanah was not tempted to to judge his wife or to mistreat her. He loved her. But Penina, on the other hand, she was far, she, she was willing to, to judge her sister wife. So you notice that both, neither of them doubt the Lord's sovereignty in this situation, but, but Elkanah recognized God's sovereignty and said, I'm still going to love my wife. Penina, on the other hand, though the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, used it to judge. Can't you just imagine what that conversation would have been like? Hey, look at all my children. God really loves me. See my blessing? You don't have any children. God must not be happy with you. She did this to irritate her. Look at verse 6. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. See, there's no secret as to where's God at in this. God is very intentional. God was the one who was sovereign over Hannah's womb. God was the one 
who was there. And even Elkanah tries to encourage his wife. This poor brother, he, I think in verse 8, when he comes to her, I think it's out of a spirit of love. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why, why, do you, why is your heart sad? Why don't you eat? Am I not more to you than ten, than ten sons? I think, I think Elkanah is trying to say, Hannah, I know that this is tough. But we still have each other. I still love you. And yet still, that's not enough for Hannah. You can understand. We can understand her shame. We can understand her brokenness because God knows the plight of his people. God, God sovereignly knows the plight of Hannah. God sovereignly knows the plight of Israel to be without a leader. He, he, is, invest, he is invested in their lives. Hannah desires this child to, for her, the sake of her honor, for the sake of her glory. Not in a negative way necessarily. See, she doesn't see having children as a nuisance, an inconvenience. She's not thinking her lack of children gives her more freedom in the world to do what she wants. No. She desires a child. And yet, in God's sovereignty, he had closed her womb. See, our lack of understanding of God's sovereign, sovereignty over our lives should not lead us to, uh, to, to not trust him, should not lead us to doubt him. Because oftentimes we're a little bit more like Panina than we want to, to realize or to admit. See, like Panina, we can say, I didn't get that job. God must not be happy with me. That situation didn't work out like I wanted it to. God must be displeased with me. And yet, sometimes, just in the sovereignty of God, we don't exactly know why. And when we don't know why God is working in a certain way, in which we have many questions, we simply trust. And then we go to him in prayer. See, for Hannah, her plight led her to dependent prayer. That's our, the second theme here in this text. God hears the prayers of his people. If he knows the plight of his people, it only makes sense that he would hear the prayers of his people. Look at verse 9. And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but you will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch him. His head. See, Hannah prays in the midst of her distress. She goes to the Lord in her challenges, and, and all of us can feel the weight of her situation. She was deeply distressed. She prayed to the Lord. She wept bitterly. See, Hannah is a woman of faith. She's a woman who's, who's trusting the Lord, and she's going to the Lord in the midst of her affliction. And she makes a vow and says, If you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. See, she's in affliction. This isn't the first time God's people had been in affliction. In Exodus chapter 3, a famous passage here where God tells Moses, I have certainly seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. See, the afflictions of God's people should always lead us to dependent prayer the sovereign Lord. 
But you might wonder, you might see Hannah's prayer and there's a vow and it almost makes it seem like she's trying to bargain with God. If you do this, then I'll do that. And that can be a challenge. But, but the ESV study Bible summarizes this well. They say Hannah's prayer <coughs> takes the form of a vow. This is not a device to attract divine attention or coerce a divine response, but an expression of faith in God's power to intervene effectively. Hannah prays, if you give me a son, I'm not going to keep him. That's not just that she's not bargaining to get something just from God to keep to herself. She's recognizing, trusting the Lord that if you provide a son, he is yours and yours completely. Notice that it says a razor shall never touch his head. That, that phrase that is something that's called a Nazarite vow. You can see it described in Numbers chapter 6. And in Numbers chapter 6, the Nazarite vow communicates that the, though the person who takes a Nazarite vow is set apart, separate for the Lord. It was possible for somebody to take a vow like this and it not be indefinite. But Hannah's vow here is an indefinite vow. He will never have a razor touch his head. He will always be set apart to the Lord's service. I should remind us of the great judge Samson. Samson was by far from a perfect leader. But yet when we think about him, we, we think about victory um, in God's people. But Hannah's piety and genuineness is real. And it's actually in contrast to the supposed priest of God's people. Look at verse 12 to see this contrast between Hannah's piety, Hannah's prayer, and Eli's ignorance. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have, neither, I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. See, Hannah's prayer was so fervent that she was mistaken for a drunken woman which says something about her prayer and it also says something about Eli's ignorance. Think of how bad it must have been among the Israelites at that time that the priest was mistook someone who was devoted to the Lord, someone who was passionate for the Lord for a drunken woman. He was more used to seeing drunkenness than fervent prayer. But Hannah defends herself and says, no, I'm not drunk. Hannah did not rely on any mom juice to take away her stress and anxiety. She was not tempted to rely on alcohol to get rid of her symptoms. She took her anxiety, her depression, all things that people in our culture would say, that drives me to drink. She took all of those things and it drove her to the Lord. She relied on him. She was dependent on him. And see, friends, God hears our prayers. And all of our plight, when we pray to the Lord, he hears our prayers. Prayers. He's aware of our situation. He was aware of Hannah's situation. He was aware of the Israelites' situation. And Eli responds to her with a positive answer in verse 17. Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. See, we, we need to admit that 
certainly our prayers are not always answered affirmatively like we want them to in the way that we desire. But in this case, in this scenario, Eli said, the Lord will answer your prayer. And, and when Hannah goes away, I think that, hey, that statement of that she goes away, she's no longer sad, is that that's a statement of trust. She believed, she had faith that the Lord was going to provide for what she asked for. So now, in her plight, she prayed, and from her prayer, we see answers. Third point, God answers the pleas of his people. God answers the pleas of his people. Look at verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. They went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew, his, knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So they woke up, they went home, and Elkanah knew his wife, meaning that they were intimate with one another. And the Lord remembered her. But in this case, something different had happened. They had been married far long enough to realize that Hannah could not get pregnant naturally. Remember, he, uh, Elkanah had taken another wife, and she had multiple sons and daughters. It was clear in Hannah's mind that she was the one who was unable to conceive. And yet Hannah still trusted. She knew that theologically that the Lord had closed her womb, but she still trusted in the promise of God through his priest that she would have a child. And notice what it says. And the Lord remembered her. What a wonderful phrase. Do you ever feel forgotten by the Lord? Do you ever feel alone? Like the Lord has forgotten you? See, this term of remembrance, remember, is a term of salvation, according to one commentator. Especially when God is the subject. When God is the one who's remembering it, we need to pay attention there because it seems as if something is going to happen significant. It could be an initiation of a major new activity by the covenant-making God. Listen to just some examples. In Genesis chapter 8, God remembered Noah and the flood subsided. In Genesis 19, when God is about to destroy the city of Sodom, it says God remembered Abraham and, and Lot got out. In a very similar situation to the one we're in today, in Genesis 30, we see that God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. And famously in Exodus chapter 2, it says during those Many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and the Jacob. Do you feel forgotten by the Lord? See, the people of Israel should be remembering some similar themes that are going on in this story. See, God had remembered, God had remembered Hannah, this barren woman that provided a child for her. But this wasn't the first time something like that had taken place. See, God told Abraham and Sarah all the way back in Genesis that you're going to have descendants that'll be like the stars of the sky. You won't be able to count them. And Sarah didn't have a child until she was 90 years old. The Bible tells us that it was impossible for her to have a, have a child. But Abraham and Sarah knew each other, and a child came when she was 90. Isaac, their son, then married Rebekah. 
And in Genesis 25, verse 21, it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Rebekah gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the one of blessing, the one of promise. He was the one who carried the covenant. And as we already noted in, from Genesis 30, Jacob's wife, Rachel, was barren. But the Lord remembered her and opened her womb. And from her womb came Joseph, the one who would go before the people in Egypt, who would, who would maintain the Egyptian society and provide for all of his people so that while the, ever, the world was hungry, while the world was in famine, God used Joseph, the seed of Rachel, to save and sustain the people. See, God provides his leader in his time and in his way. And he works in situations that are humanly impossible, and yet he provides. Do you feel forgotten by the Lord? See, think about Hannah's prayer. It's, it's almost, remember, it's remember me. Do not forget your servant. Take away my shame. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. So we cry for help. But see, Hannah's story and all those stories previous to her of barrenness where God opens the womb lead us to an even greater story where God just doesn't just open the womb of a barren woman or an old woman, but he comes to a virgin. And the angel says to that virgin, from your womb is going to come the king of kings. From your womb is going to come the one who pays for the sins of all his people. From your womb is going to come the leader that his people have been longing for. From, from your womb is going to come someone who outshines, outstands, outleads, outglorifies all those previous stories that have come before. See, Jesus comes and he takes the pain, the shame of his people, and he gives them honor. He takes, on their for, he takes on their guilt and he gives us forgiveness. He takes on our unrighteousness and he gives us righteousness. God, through Mary, gives us Jesus so that we might have the true leader that we've always longed for. God answers the pleas of all of his people in a far grander way to give us the Christ. And God's victory through Jesus is not in just leading a nation, but in dying on the cross for all of his people, so that everyone who responds in faith and repentance is now aligned with the true king of the ages. Do you feel forgotten by the Lord? Because if you do, look no further than the cross of Christ to know that you have not been forgotten. And that through miraculous means, when he remembers his servants in the past, he has remembered us to provide us the Savior. God answers our pleas, the pleas of his people. He remembers us through his son. And all those answers to prayer, it leads us to praise. Hannah recognized that. So finally, we see that the God who answers is the God who deserves the praise of his people. Look in verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord, offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. 
So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child I have prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I have made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And, she, and he worshiped the Lord there. See, we can feel the, the tension of this passage right away, can't we? The, the child that she had prayed for, she, she gives back to the Lord. She stayed faithful to the vow that she had promised. And she gives the child back. Give is another way to translate what the ESV has for Lent. But both Hannah and Elkanah are exemplary here. They stay faithful to commitment, their commitments. They stay faithful to the vows before the Lord. And their sacrifices demonstrate their generous faithfulness to trust in the Lord's plan. The child that she had prayed for, the child that she desired, she freely gave back. Hannah simply trusted and she worshipped the sovereign God of the universe who would raise up his leader in his time and in his way. And Hannah's prayer, of which deserves a sermon in and of itself in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is rich. And we see these wonderful themes of reversal, of sovereignty and a provision here. She prays in, in 1 Samuel 2, verse 1, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is, no holy, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down his shield and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Notice, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. See, Hannah prays in light of the sovereignty of God. In light of the God who reverses all things, the barren one is now the one who sings. She's the one who provides. God has restored her. He has given her salvation. And notice how she concludes this prayer. The Lord will judge the end of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That word anointed is where we get the word Messiah. Hannah knew whether it was going to be Samuel, her son, who would lead the nation, or whether it was a future king of Israel, that God was going to provide his leader in his time and in his way, and he would judge the ends of the earth. See, that song is, is a really important device as we think about the book of Samuel. And as we turn to Luke chapter 1, we see another song from Mary. 
As she had understood all that God was doing through her, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. See, Hannah's prayer for an anointed one, Hannah's prayer for a king, points us to a greater and true king that would come. And that king, he's the one that God raises up. He's the one who provides stability. He's the one who provides justice. He's the one who fights our battles. He's the king in which we trust. See, modern leaders now, they may get our vote, but they never get our allegiance. Jesus alone is the one who is worth all the praise because Jesus alone is the king. See, like Hannah and Elkanah, Joseph and Mary took their weak old baby, to the temple. And there they met an old man named Simeon. Simeon held Jesus in his arms. And he said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. See, as difficult as it would have been for Hannah to give Samuel back to the Lord, for her to leave him at the temple for the rest of his life, Mary would see her son crucified on a cross. Simeon looked at Mary in the eyes in those moments, and she said, this boy will divide the people. He'll reveal their hearts. And a sword will pierce your soul. But because because Mary's son was nailed to a cross, that king has fought all of our battles. That king is one worthy of praise. That king is the one worthy of control. And we are the people who can worship and trust Jesus, the only king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you are the sovereign one of the universe. We pray, Lord, that we would be people who trust in you. We pray that we would be people who would recognize that you alone are king. That in all of our world that can lead us to chaos, to frustration, to crying out for justice, that we have the king who endured injustice so that we might be righteous, so that we might be forgiven. Oh, Jesus, you are the true leader. May all of our allegiance and devotion be to you. Fill us, Lord, with the confidence of being your subject for the one who reigns in all authority. In Christ's name, amen.